good morning, friends. So glad you joined us today. I'm Troy Spillman. I oversee the local and global serving ministry. So that's quite a mouthful, right? So you can just shorten it and say, I'm the global pastor. Let's just keep this easy, right? Well, I'm excited just to jump in. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read the first 16 verses. So Genesis chapter 4, if you want to follow along with us, that'd be great. Starting in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought forth of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Friends, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, of just how we can actually relate in some ways or to this passage. Or maybe we can relate to Adam and Eve and the hope that they had with a new child. Maybe you can relate to Cain and his frustration of Abel just trying to do what's right. Lord, I pray you'd reveal something about your nature and you reveal something about our nature as, as mankind. So Lord, I pray you'd speak to us. You'll guide us. You'll lead us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Pastor Dan last week covered Genesis chapter 3. We talk about the fall in the garden. If I were to have a TV caption for it, it would basically be this, Paradise Lost, or Garden of Eden is now closed for business. That's really what takes place. I mean, back in chapter 3, Eve is deceived by the serpent, and Adam is right there checking out what happened on week 10 of fantasy football. And she hands him some, you know, you want me to eat this? Okay, so he takes a bite. All right, he eats. We have Adam and Eve running for cover. They hide. Their shame, they kind of make some fig clothing. 
And then blame goes all around. Enough blame for everyone. Judgment comes. And then they're banished from the garden. They're actually kicked out of the garden. So chapter four would be episode two, life outside of the garden. We're greeted in this chapter by a radical landslide of sin and rebellion. Now the account of Cain and Abel reveals the struggle that each one of us has with temptation, with sin, and reconciliation. It's something we all can wrestle with. Now back in verse one of chapter four, it says, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. You gotta love how the Bible is just straightforward, right? It just comes right out, just says it like it is. Now, a lot of translations would actually kind of use a word or a different word there. It would actually say, and Adam knew his wife Eve, which just involves, which I like, this personal and intimate relationship, this bond of unity that takes place beyond just the physical act. Now, Cain comes on the scene. We're introduced to Cain. Now, there's a, a future that is linked to him because there's this promise given to the woman's offspring, looking to the next generation, looking to to the next generation to help solve this problem, to to cure the curse. You could say it's likely that Eve thought that Cain was the seed that God had promised, the deliverer that would come through her. So she said something probably along the lines of, I have the man from the Lord, not just a man, the man. This reference back to Genesis 3, verse 15, where speaking to the serpent, God says, I put in between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so there's animosity obviously taking place, but there's ultimately going to be victory over sin and death in this curse. So there was hope that through Cain, there would be this victory over Satan and the curse. There'd be this fresh start. There'd be this new beginning. Okay, so Abel had flocks of sheep and Cain was a farmer. I mean, I can picture Abel out there in the fields, He's protecting, he's leading his sheep to the water and maybe the green grass, caring for them, maybe even carrying the little ones. Then I picture Cain. He's out there working the field. He's digging and he's planting. He's putting seed and he's watering, he's pruning. Have you ever been a farmer, been around farms? You know, it's a lot of work. But finally, their work pays off. They have different skill sets, but they both have this bounty. So in verse three, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils and offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor with Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Okay, so you have this idea of an offering being presented. We see a real acknowledgement of God being worthy to receive this offering, to receive offering as creator, as provider. Now, one offering is accepted and one is not. How is this made clear? We really don't know. I mean, was there a taste off and one kind of put to the judge's table? Was there fire that came down and consumed them both? Uh, We just don't know. Maybe one is discarded and one isn't. Um, We don't know. It isn't clear. But one thing is clear is that one was accepted. Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. Now, why? Why was Cain accepted? There's a lot of debate. I mean, um, commentators love to kind of talk this through. One idea is that a blood sacrifice, which would be Abel's, would be more acceptable, could line up with the sacrificial Old Testament system that's going to be established through Moses. But there's no proof of that. It's not mentioned at all. 
Another could be that since the ground was cursed and it only produced thorns and thistles, maybe what's produced from it would still carry a curse. Maybe, you know, that would taint it or wouldn't be as worthy. Um, I suspect there's actually a third option that could apply here where Abel's offering is mentioned as being firstborn. But we're not told anything about what Cain produces or brings as offering as being first fruit. So we see this idea of maybe there's a distinction between something being brought as first fruit or firstborn and Cain's is not. It's something he gives later. Now, there's something about an act of faith of bringing the first of the crops. Like if you bring your first fruit or a firstborn, it's an act of faith. Why? Because you're not guaranteed that more will come. Right? That's before there's maybe this, this harvest continues on. You're bringing the very first. So it really is an act of, of faith. It'd be easier to kind of hold that back and say, hey, let's see how this harvest turns out. Then let's offer this to the Lord. But that's clearly not what Abel did. So the Lord speaks of respecting Abel and then mentions respecting his offering. So it seems like the two are together. It's not maybe just about the physical offering, but something about the demeanor, something about the attitude that goes off here. Something about the quality, not just the quality of the physical offering. So Cain looks like he did it on his own terms. It's like he went through the religious motions. So there's a difference, friends, between a first fruit offering and it's on its last leg offering. Now, you know what I mean by that? There, there's a difference. Back in Malachi, in the Old Testament, one of the prophets, Malachi, is actually rebuking the, the religious establishment for bringing kind of the last leg offering. He says this, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So they're offering, you know, a three-legged lamb or one that's maybe diseased or blind. They're like, well, maybe it's not going to live that long anyways, you know, and let's, just, let's give this to the Lord. That was kind of the mentality. That was what was going on here. Now, we can be guilty, I think, of having a similar attitude. Obviously, we aren't going to be bringing our lambs to church, but, you know, we give offering. And as I've been involved in church life for quite a few years, um, as a youth pastor, you tend to collect couches, and people love to bring couches, and youth pastors love to use couches. But, you know, I've never witnessed someone just go to a furniture store and then bring me the receipt and say, hey, it's, it's going to be delivered in three days. Uh, no, I get the couch that's like it's torn, you know, maybe a couple missing springs, you know, they, and they want me to help carry it with them, you know, through the parking lot or whatever. Well, you know what I mean. Look, we're, now youth pastors are usually grateful for whatever you get. I'm not saying that. But there is a difference between the first fruit of a couch in the last fruit of a couch. <laughs> and can we not be going uh, guilty of going through the motions as well? We can be giving maybe undesirable things, left over maybe of our time or resources. Now, Genesis chapter 4, verse 5 continues on this story. It says, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Okay, we see a call here for us to confront envy. Envy rears its head. He's envious of Abel. He's envious of his offering that Abel's is accepting, his is not. So much harm originates right here and it impacts the church. It's an attitude that affects the heart. Shakespeare calls envy the green sickness. Francis Bacon said that envy has no holidays. Another said that tyrants never invented a greater torment than envy. In Dante's Purgatory, he 
shows or depicts that the envious sit like blind beggars by a wall, their eyelids sewn shut. Envy is described as a sin that blinds those that are taken in by it. Its poisonous thoughts bring about self-imposed anguish. We could all say that envy takes a toll on us. We compare, we compete, we grade, and then we wonder why we're discontent. Have you ever been one-upped by someone at work in the sting of that? Maybe your child is outperformed by a new upcoming soccer player, young kid that just moved into the area and kind of takes the glory or maybe even takes that position. Uh, you just scraped together enough money to get a used vehicle, which you're very happy with, and your neighbor pulls up with a brand new sports car. Your coworker is 10 years older, but looks 10 years younger. Enough said, right? Look, you know where I'm going with this. Look, envy, envy can take over. And envy leads to temptation. Back in Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do not do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God identifies the problem as being within. Not from an abusive or broken home, right? That hadn't started or set in yet. Not from outside or environmental pressures. Look, friends, we are called to resist temptation. We have a choice. You can kind of see this picture. Sin is crouching at the door. Very descriptive, right? You kind of see it like knocking. But will I answer it? Like working, ready to pounce. You have this great visual that the Lord gives him. But Cain you have a choice. And he says, you must rule over it. Now, sometimes we wrestle with, you know, should I do this thing? Should I not? We can wrestle with temptation. The way I've kind of described how I might wrestle with temptation, I call it spiritual ping pong. You know, maybe I'm trying to make a decision. I'm like, I don't know if, you know, the Lord would want me to do this. This is a good thing for me to do this. Maybe it's watch a movie or go to a certain place or be in certain people or buy a certain thing or act a certain way or find a certain thought or attitude. So what I do is, you know, maybe, I, oh, I don't know, I, I kind of want to do it. So I, I hit the ball over on this side and it's like, no, I don't, I don't think you should do it. And I go, no, let me give you three reasons. I hit the ball kind of back and forth, right? And I kind of blame spiritual ping pong. You know, I can kind of, this side can be very convincing and this side can kind of be convincing. But what I realize if I stop just for a moment, I go, I think I know the answer here, but I don't know if I really like the answer. So I'm going to keep playing ping pong and kind of hit it back and forth a little bit more because maybe I'm going to wear down one of the opponents and kind of maybe get my way or get what I want. So if we catch ourselves playing spiritual ping pong, maybe we need to stop. For me, it's helpful just to say something out loud. When I say it out loud, I go, oh, that's really lame. You know, but it's in my head. I can make it sound really good. When I say it out loud, maybe I need to get others involved. I need to choose what is right. When I'm tempted, God says, you have a way of escape. You can resist it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. We think we're facing this temptation that's never been faced before. But he says, no, this is common. But I'm going to be there with you. I'll give you a way out. And I'll give you the strength to battle through it. I'll give you what you need to resist. Now, how close do we get to sin before it's wrong? 
You know, I think we try to like kind of play, play around with like, can I get to the line? How close to the line can I get? I would just say that's a wrong question to ask. Last month, tragically, a young couple was known for their daredeviling and they were posing on the top of a, a Yosemite cliff, 800 foot drop. They set up the tripod, they went to take the selfie the next day. The tripod was discovered and they were missing. Somehow they fell off kind of in all this. And I wonder, I wonder how we do this spiritually. I mean, you could see the appeal, right? For them, there's appeal to get close to the line. There was this adrenaline rush. Uh, there was this idea of, man, we want to impress others. We'll make more of a name for ourselves. It's tempting to get close to the line. But I believe that's the wrong question. The question would be, how far away from the edge should we be? How far is safe? If they ask that question, may those still be here with us today. Clearly the ball was put into Cain's court. He had a choice here. He had a choice to embrace his temptation or to say no to it. Now, it's important to clarify, to be tempted is not a sin in itself. Just because I get hit with a thought or an idea or I'm tempted with this thing, that's not the sin. It's what I do with it, how I respond to the temptation. That's what really matters. That's going to define where the sin takes on and takes place. Now, we all have a choice. And if I have others involved, I have some accountability, I want to be looking for that way of escape that God promises us to have. Okay, so we're going to see that this temptation can blind us seeing and caring for the needs of others. Where we see Cain is actually blinded here. So continue on with the narrative. Verse 8 and 9 says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to him, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord asked the similar question to Adam back in the garden. He asked, where are you? And Adam tries to avoid his shame by putting on some fig leaf pants, right? And Cain tries to avoid the question by lying and by playing dumb. This is a classic parent and child interaction, right? Where is your brother Abel? Now, parents, I'm going to ask you, parents, when you catch your child doing something, you ask a question, right? You ask, what are you doing or what did you do? Why do you ask that? Because you want them to confess. That's right. You want them to answer. You're giving them opportunity here to come clean, right? You know, it's not like you don't know what's going on. You have a pretty good idea. But you, you still ask the question. You get an opportunity. That, I believe, is what God is doing. Now, when I was a toddler, my mom um, caught me red-handed flushing tons of her toiletries and makeup down the toilet. I just thought, this is a great escape shoot. I mean, let's not try this thing out, you know? So, of course, she comes in, and as toothbrushes are bobbing in the toilet, and you're like, what are you, what are you doing? Well, it's pretty clear. I, no, I'm trying out this ejector button. This is awesome. So, um, she told me it took, like, weeks for her to fish out, you know, like, makeup and things were still, like, popping up later on. Yeah, you know, I guess I must have jammed a lot down in there. But you get the point. Look, we have an opportunity to come clean in those situations. And as a parent, we get that. Now, Cain's frustration is misplaced. Failed to learn the lesson and grow from it. So he gets angry. Now, I just want to take a moment. We each need to take responsibility for our anger. We can each be triggered to be angry. 
Anger is often a reaction to fear and frustration and pain, which can be both emotional and physical. Here's the key. How I respond is my duty. It's my responsibility and mine alone. I need to clearly see it. I need to identify it. I need to ask God to change it. As I take ownership of it, I take it to the Lord. If this is an issue that, that you wrestle with, if this is something that you struggle with, I just tell you, look, God's on your side. He's there for you. We as a church want to be there for you. In fact, afterwards, we have a prayer team. I'd love to talk to you and, and pray with you. We'd love to give you the resources and, and just give you the support that you need. We don't want to take this issue lightly. But he goes on, he says, am I my brother's keeper? It's not even a legitimate question. It's an angry response, a retort, right? We're not sure of the timing of this whole interaction, but I picture God kind of appearing to Cain the next day out in the field as Cain's just kind of like pretending like life is good, right? You know, I'm going back to the fields and, you know, I'm going to just continue on to this harvesting kind of thing. It's like Cain is saying, how dare you ask me about my brother? Uh, that's not my job. He can take care of himself. Uh, why are you bringing this to me? Well, I believe that Cain here brings up a good question, something that we need to contemplate. Uh, we are called to love others selflessly. As Christians, as believers, we're called to love. That's, that's part of our calling. That's part of, of who we are in Christ. In 1 John 4, verse 20, it says, Whoever claims to love God hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever God does not love, who does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. You get the idea. How can I claim that I love God I don't see if I can't love his children who I do see? The bottom line is this. The more that we love God, the more that we will love those that are created in his image. Look, those all around us are created in his image. We have a duty. We're called to love them. It's a sin of not wanting to be inconvenienced. Han Solo in, a, in New Hope, episode four, he's a good example of this because, look, he didn't want to rescue Princess Leia. Why? Well, he's also interested in helping when he finds out that she is rich. And if you're confused about the whole Star Wars thing, talk to Pastor Phil afterwards. He'll straighten this all out for you. <laughs> and then, you see, Han Solo he doesn't want to take down the Death Star to help the rebellion because he has his money now and he's interested in paying off his debt to Jabba the Hutt. But then I love that ultimately he comes around, he helps save the day because he has this moral compass that helps him and drives him. Now look, we can relate to this, right? We just don't want to be inconvenienced a lot of the time. Some agree that's really kind of the bottom line is I have my plan, I have my agenda. We might avoid the call from aging parents that they might need some help. We might make a wide path around a homeless person that's asking for money. We might avoid the awkwardness of not knowing what to say to someone who recently lost a loved one, so we say nothing. We take a different door into the office to avoid the cubicles that house especially needy or talkative people. There's a challenge for us Christians to engage, to engage those around us. They're image bearers of the Lord. Made in his image, we are called to love them. So are we our brother's keeper or sister's keeper? Yes. Yes, we are. Genesis 4, verses 10 to 16. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
Now you are a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain and said that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So now the hope for, hope for Redeemer found to be a murderer. And the second son is the victim of this murder. So if you look at the offspring and Adam and Eve, they're not scoring too well. I mean, right now it's, it's two and, or sorry, no, it's actually oh and two, right? Not doing great. Not off to a swell start. Something so unrighteous and evil took place here that actually says that Abel's blood cried out to the Lord. And that's something we see throughout the Bible of, of heinous acts. I'm talking about murder where the blood is crying out. We go from disobedience in the garden to straight up murder in this downward spiral of sin. So let's look at Cain's punishment just for a moment. He's cursed. Now it's going to be mission impossible for him to grow anything. It was going to be a little challenging, you know, with the thorns and thistles. But now for him, it's mission impossible. Imagine this this scene. I mean, Cain has a green thumb, yet nothing works for him. I mean, Miracle Girl can't even help this guy out at this point. He's driven from the land because it's so unproductive. Here's a guy who took his pride in, in growing things, and now Zippo. And also, this alienation, he's driven from other, other humans. He's on his own. His destination at this point is Lonelyville. He's all on his own. Okay, so let's address just for a moment. Everyone asks this question. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married a close relative. There's no way around this. Not a lot of options at this point, people. Um, there's a population explosion that's about to take place. So, but for time being, um, it was okay for close relational uh, connections to match up. And so we see that taking place. Now, the genetic pool at this time was pure. We don't see any issues of you know, genetic or dearth, uh, birth defects at this point. But later on, under Moses, the law was established to forbid these kind of relationships. Okay, moving on. We see the Lord's mercy in this interaction. We see that Cain didn't get what he deserved. He didn't get what he deserved. He deserved death. Later in the law given to Moses, a murderer was to be killed himself. He was to be killed for his crime. Cain, he didn't feel bad about his sin, but he was super sad about his punishment. He didn't feel bad about his sin, but only about his punishment. One author put it this way. One of the consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself instead of causing him to turn to God. One of the first signs of new life is that the individual takes sides with God against himself. Basically saying, I agree. I agree that I've fallen short. Will you forgive me? Will you make this right? The Lord put a special mark on him so no one kill him. Who would possibly kill him? Well, we're about to go into a population explosion, as it said. So where does this sin and this failure lead us? Okay, let's jump down to verse 25 and 26. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. 
Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Here, we see we're called to embrace a future hope. There's a future hope that they were embracing. There's a future hope, friends, that we have. And it's not in this world. There's a world beyond that the Lord is making for us. Jesus says, I'm going away to create a place for you that I'm going to come back and have you join me. We see that Seth represents a new start. The birth of Seth is a fresh line that will go all the way, that will survive the flood and ultimately lead to the Messiah. There's great expectation when we have children. Think of our baby dedications that we had earlier. There's great hope and expectation what God's going to do in their lives. Literally, this idea of another seed, referencing back to this victory that we'll, they'll have over Satan through this family line. There's a new hope. Now, rarely we think about the grief that Adam and Eve must experience. They lose one son to death, another one is banished. This would have been really easy to lose hope. But yet, God gives them new hope through this son, Seth. Just as Cain had a choice, we all have a choice. We have a choice. The family line of Seth, which leads to Jesus Messiah, will bring this hope and salvation. Jesus is our hope. The Messiah that would step into the scene and step on the head of the serpent, freeing us from the hold and power that he has. Revelation chapter 21, the end of ages, it says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I think the older I get, the more I look forward to this. The, I call it the place of no more. No more pain, no more suffering, no more medical bills or doctor visits, right? I mean, no more achy pains, kind of get in the morning, have to stretch out the back. Look, this is a place of no more, no more loss. Hope in new life. This is what we get to look forward to. In the Garden of Eden, hope was lost. In the Garden of the Tomb where Jesus was buried, hope was restored. Jesus came, lived a perfect, perfect life, suffered a criminal's death that we may have this hope be forgiven and brought into this loving relationship with God our Father. We are given this hope. Jesus offers this forgiveness. He offers new life. He offers this new hope. The choice has gone from Cain, passed down to us, to embrace this life that God has for us. There's a Cain in each one of us, is there not, with this temptation of going through the religious motions. We can just go through the motions Part of us kind of rebels against the idea of relating to Cain. We're like, I'm no murderer, but there's attitudes there that I think we can all relate to. There's the anger, and there's the envy, and the harboring of resentment. There's the dodging of God. There's the lack of trust. There's the staying in the easy lane of life, giving on our own terms. We get to call the shots. I think there's a lot we can actually relate. I know that I can the Lord showed his mercy in the beginning, and he shows mercy today. He still shows it. And Romans chapter 10 says this, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, that's our hope. That's what we get to look forward to, but we can experience this hope here and now. If you've never made Jesus your Lord, We'd love to talk to you more about that afterwards. We'll be up here. I'll be here. We have our pastoral staff. We have our prayer team. 
love to talk to you more about that where you can make that personal decision of making him your Lord and Savior, that you would have this new start, this new life, and this eternal hope. Well, friends, I think we can all relate some degree of what just took place, what we just read. We think of, maybe we can relate to Cain. Maybe we can relate to Abel to some degree. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to do my best. I'm trying to follow the Lord and, and offer to him. Maybe we can relate to Adam and Eve with their loss. Maybe we can relate to even having Seth, where we can have this idea of, hey, there's hope. There's, there's hope I'm holding on to, I'm clinging to. Friends, wherever you are in that journey, wherever you're on that walk, let's put our trust in the Lord. He's here for us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you for the lessons I've learned here. Some of it's hard to hear, but yet, Lord, we need to hear it. Lord, I know that I can just go through the religious motions. I can just go through the routine. Lord, forgive me of that. Lord, I don't want to do that any longer. Lord, I pray that you would, you would help me resist temptation. Lord, I would say no to envy. Lord, show me how to be able to care for and, and love those that are in need. Really be our brother and sister's keeper. Lord, but yet may we cling to this hope, this hope that we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen.